Hey everybody, it's Father Edward Looney, the host of How They Love Mary. And I know that this is a podcast and you can only hear me. But if you were to see me, especially at Mass on a given Sunday, if you were to catch a glance at my socks when I genuflected, you would notice that they are fun socks. If I am not wearing Packer game day socks, you can bet that I am wearing socks from Socks Religious. Socks Religious brings you socks with saints on them. I own St. John Paul II, St. Joseph that I like wearing on Wednesdays, St. Patrick I like wearing during ordinary time. I have the rosary socks. I like wearing those on Marian feast days. St. Nicholas wore that one for the Feast of St. Nick on December 6th. I love Socks Religious. They are the perfect gift for me, and they can be the perfect gift for someone in your life. I encourage you to find the link to Socks Religious in the show notes today and buy a pair of socks for yourself, for your family, or for your friends. And now, on with today's show. Hello, my name is Father Edward Looney, and you are listening to the podcast, How They Love Mary, a podcast that I hope will either be the beginning or the deepening of your Marian devotion. The Augustine Institute is known for their graduate school of theology and the degrees that they confer upon their students. They're also known for books and the talks that they produce for the platform Formed, used by many parishes as a way to encourage people to go deeper in their faith and know their faith better. And now they have published the Catholic edition of the English Standard Version of the Bible. Today, I'm happy to be speaking with Dr. Mark Gieschek, a scripture professor at the Augustine Institute, who will help us understand the complexities of the Bible, encourage us to read the scriptures, and because this is a podcast about Mary, we'll talk about some of the Marian prophecies in the Old Testament. So welcome to the show, Dr. Mark Gieschek. Check. Oh, Father, it's really great to be with you. Um, I just, I'm so excited to be here, and I, I just really appreciate the work that you're doing and uh, all the great content that you're putting out. It's really encouraging. Well, thank you for those kind words, and I really love the Augustine Institute, and I know Dr. Edward Cherie was with you guys for a very long time. Uh, I think that he's gone on to focus now, if I'm not mistaken, but uh, he's one of the great teachers of the faith that I think, and he raises up other generations of teachers, such as yourself and uh, contemporaries with him. And so, uh, I, you know, to be honest, I hadn't heard of you, and I'm happy to be able to speak with you and uh, to learn about you and to learn from you, because you are this uh, professor of scripture uh, for the Augustine Institute. Yeah, well, I, I guess I, uh, as an Old Testament scholar, I labor in the shadows. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, Dr. Sri is a wonderful friend, and uh, and he still teaches for us at the Augustine Institute, but you're right, he's working full-time at Focus, directing all of their uh, formation programs for all of their missionaries. So he's doing a great work there, uh, but we're happy that uh, he still teaches a course uh, for us at least once a year. So uh, uh, he's able to bless our students in that way. Yes, he blesses so many throughout the country, throughout the world. He was actually the keynote speaker this past year uh, for the Mariological Society Conference, which was actually held virtually. So I just love uh, Dr. Sri and the Augustine Institute. So, you know, one of the things I remember as a young boy, there was a bookshelf in my bedroom. It didn't have books that I put on there. They were just books like family books. And one of them actually was this 
old Bible from like the 1970s. It had a picture of Jesus on it. I think it said the Good News Bible, you know, a really, or no, it said the way. It was the way translation of the scriptures. So there are lots of different translations of the scriptures. And I think a lot of people, they probably aren't even aware of this. So that, you know, at mass, we hear the scriptures proclaimed from the New American Bible. Whereas if you go to Europe, maybe to England, they use a different translation, maybe the Jerusalem Bible or the uh, Revised Standard Version. So there are all these different translations of the Bible, and they tell the same story, of course. They're trying to communicate what the original writers of the scriptures conveyed, uh, what they wrote, but yet we have these different versions. So the Augustine Institute has published the English Standard Version of the Bible, or in Bible speak, maybe the ESV Catholic Edition. And with these other translations out there, uh, I guess I'm just wondering, could you explain the process of biblical translation? Why are there so many different Bible translations out there? And what makes the English Standard Version unique? Sure, sure. I I like to think of it in terms of walking into a, a Catholic bookstore, a Christian bookstore, and you head over to the Bible section, and there's just a bunch of letters, right? You've got, you know, NLL, NLT, uh, NIV, RSV, uh, NAB, and NASB. It's like, what it, it's like you just walk into, like, this sort of alphabet soup land with a lot of leather covers, and you're thinking, what, why do we, why do we need all these translations, and what, what are they all doing here, and, and how do, how do we, you know, sort of make sense of this? And I think, you know, for a, a normal Catholic, you're thinking, I just want to, I, I don't want to have to make a decision about this. I just want to, you know, have a, a, a Bible given to me, and then I can just read it, not have to think about the translation. Uh, you know, the Protestants have dozens and dozens of translations for all sorts of different groups. But in the Catholic world, we really only have a few sort of families of translation. The traditional one in English that was used for hundreds of years is called the Douay Reims, uh, which was translated from the Latin into English and was read at Mass. Uh, but in the 20th century, we got a handful of new translations, which people are probably familiar with. Uh, the one, of course, that we use at the in the lectionary in the United States is the New American Bible Revised Edition, which has come out in a few uh, different um, revisions over the years. The Jerusalem Bible is used in a lot of uh, countries outside the United States, um, and that's been updated as the New Jerusalem Bible and now the Revised New Jerusalem Bible, the RNJB. Uh, and but then there's the traditional English translations. So what I mean by that are those that sort of uh, have their ancestry through the King James version. So the King James Bible, of course, was the standard Bible in the English language because most English speakers were Protestants from about 1600 uh, until about 1950, which is when the RSV was released. So the Revised Standard Version, which a lot of people will be familiar with. Uh, sort of inherits the King James tradition. And the ESV, the English Standard Version, is a revision of the RSV. Changes about 7% of the text, something like 60,000 words. Uh, so it, it inherits that English language tradition. So uh, there are, of course, a handful of other translations, like the New Living Translation and others, that some people will use the Good News Bible, like you mentioned. Uh, but the most popular ones are those, those families, right? The New American Bible, Jerusalem Bible, and then uh, the uh, the King James RSV tradition. I know Ignatius Press publishes the 
RSV Catholic Edition. Now you're publishing, Augustine Institute, the Catholic Edition of the ESV Bible. And is there something with yep. different translations, like in terms of one of them came from the Hebrew translation or the Greek translation of the scriptures? Or am I just making this up in my mind? Well, I mean, for every translation, there's what you call a textual basis. Textual basis. And that is what the translators were looking at when they started translating. So the textual basis for the Douay Reims was the Latin Vulgate. Uh, you know, the, the traditional official Latin Bible of the Church translated by St. Jerome. The textual basis for the King James Version was the Hebrew and Greek editions that they had available at the time that they were working, right around 1600. Uh, primarily Erasmus's edition of the Greek New Testament. Um, but what's what's important to remember, and this is this is where it gets sort of into the technical weeds here, is that over time the scholarly community finds more textual evidence and is able to discern the text of the original languages a little bit better than before. So, for example, in the New Testament, you have a lot of scholars that work in New Testament textual criticism. There's lots of pieces of evidence, you know, thousands of manuscripts, some of which are partial, some of which are complete, some of which are fragments, and the scholars collate all of these manuscripts, put all the evidence together, right, and then give us what's called an eclectic text of the Greek New Testament, where the text that we're using in one of our modern editions of the Greek New Testament it is not a manuscript from the ancient world, but it is rather the sort of best uh, assessment of all of the evidence that we have from all of the thousands of pieces of evidence. So, for example, the edition that's standard now is the 28th edition of the uh, uh, Greek New Testament. So, meaning we there are 27 previous editions. So, all of that is to say, over time, we get better and better evidence, and so we get a better and better and stronger textual basis. So, the RSV was translated in the 1940s, uh, using a much, much earlier edition of the Greek New Testament, and the ESV was able to draw on the 27th edition of the uh, Greek New Testament. So all of, all of that is to say that translation is a complicated process because it doesn't just involve decisions about meanings of words. Translation also involves decisions about which text is really the Bible, right? Which, which manuscript is the best? Because as translators are working, they have to make a certain number of textual decisions right, about which word belongs here and which word doesn't. I'll give you an example of that in the ESV that might be helpful. If you look in Jude, which is just one chapter in verse 5, and you look, say, in the RSV or NAB or a lot of other translations, uh, it doesn't have the name of Jesus. Okay, But if you look in the ESV, it does. It says, Jesus is saved people out of the land of Egypt. And you look at that, and you're thinking, wait, why is Jesus in the ESV, but he's not in RSV or these other translations? It's because there are certain ancient manuscripts that include the name of Jesus. In fact, the majority of manuscripts do, but there are certain other manuscripts that don't. Right? And so the translators have to decide, okay, are we going to include the name of Jesus in this verse, or are we going to, to exclude the name of Jesus from this verse? And they have to reach a judgment a decision, and then they, you know, render it into English. And as English readers, you know, we're sitting here almost as, as kind of, you know, passive, uh, you know, willing victims of the translators, right? There's a way in which we don't have access uh, as English readers to all the information that the translators do. And so 
uh, you know, we're listening to them, hoping that they're being honest and forthright and giving us everything that they have. But, you know, translators often will include notes at the bottom of the page, right? Well, they say, you know, when they had trouble reaching a decision, they'll, they'll leave an alternative version at the bottom and say, well, another manuscript says this. Uh, and that, I think, can be a helpful way for them to kind of hedge against complaints. Uh, I don't know if this is making sense, right? So there's, there's, a, there's a, lot of, there are a lot of decisions that translators have to make in their work. Yeah, basically what you're getting at is that it's it would be a good practice for us. If we have different translations of the Bible, if you have the NAB, the RSV, now the English Standard Version of the Bible, and you're maybe looking at a Bible passage, you can go to a specific verse, like you said, and you can compare and see, well, how did they render it here? How is it different here? How is it different there? And what do these differences mean? I think one of them, if I'm not mistaken, is probably in Luke's gospel, and it's at the prophecy of Simeon. It says that, and a sword will pierce your heart. And I got into, you know, a little hot water with an editor over this because one Bible translation says that, so that the thoughts of many hearts might be revealed, that a sword must pierce your heart, and that's in parentheses, so that the thoughts of many hearts might be revealed. And so I went with that, saying that Mary has experienced all the different sorrows and emotions of our life because she was a human person. But then you go to a different translation of the Bible, and they don't have that phrase in there. And so then, you know, yeah. you kind of are in the Bible war of, of uh, the phrases like, well, should we use this or should we not? Why is it not in this one? Why is it in this one? So totally get uh, the, the inclusion of words and maybe the exclusion of words and phrases as well. Yeah, one of my favorite examples of this is if you look up Acts chapter 8, verse 37. Uh, in most Bibles, it just skips from verse 36 to ver verse 38. Uh, and if you're lucky, the translators put in a little note saying something like, some ancient manuscripts include verse 37, and here's what it is. Um, but I, I feel like that's a great example. So ver Acts 8.37 comes from uh, the late Byzantine textual tradition, and the earlier Alexandrian tradition does not include that verse. And so I would say almost all New Testament text critics regard the verse as an addition. Right, something that was added to the text later, and so it's it's something that actually ought not be included in our Bibles. But if you compare, say, for example, the Latin Vulgate, which includes the verse, to the Nova Vulgata, released in 1979, uh, that uh, you know, which ex it excludes the verse. Right, so it's. I, I think maybe one way to think about it is that the, the canon of Scripture is a little bit fuzzy around the edges, and that's why we need teams of scholars working on these types of questions to arrive at the best text possible in order to, so that that can serve as the textual basis for our translation. As we talk about these different translations of the Bible, you already alluded to the fact that the Protestants have lots of different translations of the Scriptures. And I'm willing to bet in some Catholic households that there are Protestant Bibles in their homes, probably because they don't know any better. They didn't know that there were Catholic versions of the Bible as opposed to a Protestant version of the Bible. They didn't understand the translations and all the letters, the alphabet soup that you mentioned, could you just share what is the difference, the main difference, beside translation, of course, between a Catholic Bible and a Protestant Bible? Yeah, well, the, the main difference is that Catholic Bibles are bigger, right? We have additional books in the Old Testament that aren't included in Protestant Bibles. But I, I have to say, I've got a lot of Protestant Bibles on my shelf, and in fact, you know, that's how I learned about the, the English Standard Version to begin with. You know, I, I asked one of my professors a long time ago, you know, what Bible translation would you recommend? And he said, oh, you should look at the new 
uh, ESV Bible. And I said, okay, so I bought a copy, and I've been using it ever since. And it's been great. I've really enjoyed it, and that's why I was so excited when I heard about the Catholic edition being released in India. Uh, and I got in touch with them and, uh, and asked them a lot of questions. I said, when's it going to be released in the United States? And one conversation led to another, and all of a sudden the Augustine Institute is publishing it. So I'm really excited to be able to share this translation that's been my favorite translation with other Catholics. It's such a, a joy to me. And, you know, if you look at a Catholic Bible versus a Protestant Bible, in the Catholic Bible you can have books like Tobit and Judas and First and Second Maccabees. These are books that are, were included in the ancient Greek editions of the Bible, what we refer to as the Septuagint, the, the Greek Bible, of the, the Greek Old Testament Bible. Uh, whereas the, uh, these, uh, the Protestant canon of the Old Testament is based exclusively on what's available in Hebrew and Aramaic. So all of the books in the Protestant canon are translated from Hebrew and Aramaic, but in the Catholic canon, some of the books are translated from Greek. Uh, and so that's maybe one way to think about it, right? That the, the Protestant Bible is just the Hebrew Bible, but the, um, the Catholic Old Testament is a little bit more complicated. It's multilingual, right? It's Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And if, if, this is particularly the case in the books Esther and Daniel, where, of course, those books are in the Protestant Bible, but in the Catholic Bible, those books are bigger. Uh, and why? Because Esther and Daniel include additions uh, from the Greek text. So some of it's translated from Hebrew, some of it's translated from Greek, uh, some of it from Aramaic in the case of Daniel. And, uh, uh, and so Catholic Bibles in that way, right, are bigger. Uh, other than that, though, there's not a whole lot of difference, right? The New Testament is the same, right? And the other books are the same. And in fact, you know, we share a lot of, uh, uh, of priorities with the Protestants, right? We both want a very accurate text. We both want a very good English translation that's readable, understandable, elegant, right? We both want uh, accuracy to the original language. So, the ESV prides itself on being an essentially literal translation. Uh, it says that it's transparent as possible to the original languages. And I think that's a goal that, you know, basically every translator can agree on. What, what you're trying to do is move meaning from one language system into another language system, right, through words, and you want that to be as clear as possible and as transparent as possible to the original language. Some Bible translations will adopt a phrase-by-phrase -phrase translation style, sometimes called dynamic equivalent, where they take, like, a whole sentence, and then they sort of say, okay, this sentence has this kind of meaning, and then they take that meaning and try to render it into English, and aren't necessarily trying to, you know, bring the words over, they're trying to bring the meaning over. Well, the ESV doesn't adopt that philosophy of dynamic equivalence or phrase-for-phrase -phrase translation, but it adopts the opposite philosophy of word-for-word -word style translation or formal equivalent, where it's really seeking to render each word in the original language into English in a kind of one-for-one -one way. Now, there's certain cases where that's not possible for certain reasons, and they have to add a word for explanation or to, for clarity. But in general, right, it really is a word-for-word -word style translation that's trying to be as exact, as accurate as possible. And one of the ways that this is represented in the ESV is that it preserves what I'll call biblical English, right, or theological English. It's going to keep important key words like justification, grace, and other theological terms that might be obscured if we adopted a more kind of cavalier, casual approach to translation. So I think the ESV does a great job of preserving accuracy, right, uh, uh, and literal 
translation without becoming a kind of mechanistic, literalistic kind of reading, right? It really does read as good English, but it reads as good, accurate translation as well. Well, you just taught me something that I didn't know. I did not know that Esther and Daniel were longer in the Catholic version of the Bible because of the different texts that it also includes. So that was something that I just learned. And you said earlier that the ESV was your favorite version of the translation of the Bible. And I think you went on to explain quite well why that is. And I don't have an ESV Bible, so I think I'm going to be picking up an ESV and making use of that in my own life. And You know, when we talk about the scriptures, and as a pastor, as a priest, I encourage people to read the scriptures every day. There's a very popular speaker, Father Larry Richards. He has this famous phrase, no Bible, no breakfast, no Bible, no bed. So basically he's saying, before you eat breakfast, read from the scriptures as you begin your day. Before you go to bed at night, read from the scriptures so that you begin your day and end your day with the word of God. And I know that with the new year and everything like that, people try to maybe make a resolution. I am going to read the entire Bible in the, uh, in, in this year. And maybe they fall off. They don't do it. Who knows? I know that the Pauline sisters right now, they have a year of the Bible in their community because of some sort of anniversary. And so the daughters of St. Paul are trying to read the Bible, some of their sisters throughout the entire year to read the all of the scriptures, the Old, the New Testament. So when a person, you know, kind of just your average Catholic, maybe the person that says, I want to read the scriptures more, how might they start doing that? What would you recommend to someone who wants to start reading the Bible with great regularity? Where should they start? How should they go about this process? And I guess they should use the ESV translation. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe one way to think about it is there are two speeds in Bible translation or Bible reading, right? Fast and slow, right? And the Church actually has two different ways of talking about this, and it's kind of official terminology of Bible study, right? Slow, prayerful reading of the Bible is called Lexio Divina. It's a really good thing to do. We should do it frequently, right? Take your Bible to the Adoration Chapel and just pick a small passage and read it slowly and carefully and meditate on it and pray with it, and allow it to minister to your heart, right? The Lord really works through that experience. But what a lot of people don't know about is the fast version of Catholic Bible reading, which the Church calls Lexio Continua. And that's what you're talking about, where you sit down and you say, I'm going to read the whole Bible in a year, right? Or I'm going to, I'm going to read the Bible every day, I'm going to work my way all the way through the Old Testament, or something like this. And I think this is a really helpful uh, practice for us to adopt, because it, it gives context and a kind of structure to our Lexio Divina and to the readings that we hear at Mass and to other moments when we encounter the Bible, if we sort of read through from Genesis to Revelation, we've got a sense of the whole, that all of the parts start to come together and make sense, right? We've got sort of hooks to hang things on, if you will. Now, the Augustine Institute has a Bible we call the Bible in a Year uh, in the ESV translation, and it, it divides the whole Bible up into daily readings uh, for 365 days of the year, and you work your way through, and you could start on January 1st if you want, it's a great time to start, but you could really start any day of the year and work your way through for 365 days, and every day you get a little bit of Old Testament, a little bit of New Testament, a little bit of wisdom or Psalms, uh, and then you get a small little comment, right, uh, that sort of helps tie those readings together. And that could be a great way to kind of work your way through the Bible. 
so the Bible in a year for the Augustine Institute is great. You can get it at catholicbible.org. Um, but honestly, I, I mean, I think there are a lot of different approaches. You know, a lot of us spend a lot of time in the car. You know, and we might end up listening to music or the radio or whatever. And, you know, another thing we could do is get Bible on MP3 or Bible on CD, put it in the car, and just listen to it throughout the year. Uh, and I think, you know, there are many different ways, especially now with, you know, electronic means available to us, that we can, you know, get reminders on our phones or, you know, wake up and read the Bible on an app. Uh, and I just think that the Word of God is so accessible to us in a way that it wasn't to previous generations, you know, who maybe, you know, didn't have ability to read or didn't have inexpensive Bibles available and certainly didn't have all the electronic means of accessing the text that we do, you know, maybe spend, we could spend a little bit less time reading the internet and, you know, social media and spend a little bit more time with the sacred scriptures, and I think we'll spiritually benefit from it. You know, it's a really powerful practice, whether we're doing that slow, prayerful Lexio Divina or whether we're doing the fast, read-through-the-Bible Lexio Continua, uh, either way that we go, you know, the Lord is going to touch our hearts and our minds through that process. This past uh, Advent, I gave a talk to a group in Australia, or it was organized by this Australian group, and I was researching the prophet Zephaniah. And the reason I chose Zephaniah was because of the beautiful phrase that he has in Zephaniah chapter 3, that he says, Rejoice, O daughter Zion, for the Lord is in your midst. He has removed the judgment against your people and all of that. And, and so I like reflecting upon that in light of the Annunciation and kind of the parallels that we see there in terms of the way it's presented. And one of the things I did, I had to give a 20-minute talk, and so I wanted to talk a little bit about Zephaniah the prophet himself and other themes in that small book of the Bible in the Old Testament of this prophetic literature. And what I did was I went to some of the Bibles I had, and I read the kind of the introduction to each. I read the introduction to the book of Zephaniah, and a friend of mine, I knew that they had the Didache Bible, and I don't have that. I don't even know what translation of the Bible it is, anything like that. And I just texted and I said, hey, could you take a picture of the Zephaniah page and send it to me so I could just read what they have uh, as I prepare my remarks on the prophet Zephaniah and daughter Zion. And so that was a way that I went about kind of studying um, in advance one of the books of the Bible. Now, there are different Bible commentaries out there, and some Bibles include commentaries within the Bible itself. I don't know if the ESV does that, uh, but I guess where I'm going is there are people out there that I think who are interested in Bible studies. And so if someone wants to do a Bible study or if they want to learn more about the scriptures, how can they go about that? What's the recommended method for that? Wow. Well, I mean, I feel like we have a sort of embarrassment of riches at the Augustine Institute for Bible study, right? And you could do it in so many different ways, uh, you know, whether it's with us or with you know, so many other wonderful Catholic publishers and groups, you know, there's so many Bible teachers nowadays and so many resources available. I think um, maybe one thing is, is to sort of look before you leap, you know. I, I think sometimes people find uh, an idea or a book that they're interested in, they sort of burrow in deep and then don't have a sense for the whole, right? They sort of lose the forest for the tree. I think it's helpful to have a kind of overview of the Bible before diving into any particular area in it, so that, again, you kind of have a framework for understanding it. Um, I think there are a lot of different ways to do this, right? So one would be, yeah, pick up a great study Bible, work your way through the notes, 
you know, and, and, uh, and so forth. There are, uh, you know, great books that sort of give an overview of the Bible, wonderful Bible study programs. You know, I'm thinking of some of the uh, things that have been have come out from, say, Ignatius Press or Ascension Press or from the Augustine Institute. Um, and, uh, you know, if you want a kind of video experience, the Augustine Institute has these uh, wonderful Bible studies led by great Bible teachers like Mary Healy, Brant Petrie, and Tim Gray, uh, called Lexio. And they, they dive into different topics, whether it's the Book of Acts or prayer or, uh, you know, all sorts of different topics are covered in those, in those studies. And those are available on forums. Um, we've also started a, a new program that's a, uh, a short course program. So it's, uh, uh, courses that are taught by professors at the Augustine Institute on different topics. Uh, some are scripture, some are theology, some are history. Uh, and you can get into that system and, and take these short courses. Most of the courses are about three hours, four hours or so, you know, in, in short 30 minute lectures, easily digestible. It's a not for credit kind of experience. Uh, and it, uh, is a way to sort of dive in to a topic, right? Without having to like sign up for a graduate level course and apply for admission and all, all that sort of thing. So I feel like there are so many different ways that we can do it. And maybe uh, one of the things to do is just not get overwhelmed by the all the resources. I mean, if you uh, you know if you go to a theological library, you go to the Bible section. It's massive. You know, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of books. Where could you ever possibly begin? And I think one of the best ways to do it is, is find a good teacher, find a good resource, a good book, a good study Bible. You know, and start from there. One of the books that I love to recommend to people is Walking with God by Jeff Cavins and Tim Gray. It's a very simple introduction to the Bible. It's not very long, but it works through all the different parts of the Bible, and you kind of get a sense of the whole, so that then you can kind of dive into any particular era, area. Um, so these are some of my recommendations, but again, there's so many different ways to go about Bible study. I think it's just helpful to have a good teacher to accompany you along the way. You mentioned Mary Healy, and the very first class in the scriptures after college, so in graduate school at graduate seminary level, we had to take a class on the Gospel of Mark, and we had to get this one book. Uh, it was a kind of a, a commentary series. It's kind of a maroon cover. It had a picture of Jesus, I think, on it, but it was by Mary Healy, and I thought it was one of the best kind of commentaries that in terms of style and, and presentation that I read, and it was very accessible. I thoroughly enjoyed it and ended up buying several other uh, in this Catholic Bible commentary series. I think it was put out by Erdman's, if I'm not mistaken. So that was a way in which I really appreciated studying the Bible. And as a priest, of course, looking at different scriptures and getting a little history from other sources and whatnot uh, in order to enhance my preaching and such. So, so yeah, I think people are hungry. There are certain people out there that want to go deeper. So maybe we start with reading the scriptures and then sooner or later, you're going to want to study them and learn even more about the scriptures. And one of the things we can learn about the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, is that we see a lot of the old is fulfilled in the new. And that's how our mass readings are set up, that oftentimes we'll read something from the Old Testament at mass, and then we see how Jesus fulfills it in the gospel at Sunday mass. Or at daily mass, often we see that the responsorial psalm is a response to what we just heard in the first reading. It's great. It's beautiful, ingenious uh, what the church does there. And 
One of the things we see in the scriptures, and you're a professor of Old Testament scripture, and we see some allusions to the Blessed Mother there. Some people say Genesis 3.15, the woman whose foot will crush the serpent. Well, we see the Our Lady of Grace statue, and we see that as Mary, okay? We, we hear Hannah, and she gives her song that she gives praise to God because she gave birth to her son Samuel and now is giving him back to God. And the paraphrase of Mary's Magnificat, and then the prophets, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and name him Emmanuel. Well, we see that, Jesus. Maybe daughter Zion, as I mentioned a little bit earlier. Uh, Rejoice, O daughter Zion, the Lord has removed the guilt of your people. Um, I guess, could you just comment uh, a little bit about these Marian prophecies, because there's one scripture scholar, I won't name him, but uh, when I wrote a paper actually on Daughter Zion, I critiqued his, his comment. He said that the authors of Zechariah and Zephaniah did not intend to have this be a Marian reference, so we must not read Mary into the scriptures where she does not belong. That's a paraphrase, but it's a pretty good paraphrase of it. Basically, he said, they didn't intend Mary. We shouldn't think about it as Mary. And then I'm like, well, then we're not looking at any prophecy at all then. Um, so could you just comment a little bit about some of these Marian prophecies we find in the Old Testament? Sure. So uh, first, I want to say one thing, Father. I'm really happy you brought up uh, Mary Healy and her commentary on the Gospel of Mark in the Catholic Commentary on Sacred Scripture series, uh, because... Uh, I've been invited by Mary Healy and Peter Williamson, the editors of that series, to join them in editing the Old Testament uh, series of the Catholic Commentary on Sacred Scripture. So uh, over the next 10 years or so, we're going to be releasing 16 volumes of commentary on New Testament or Old Testament passages, Old Testament books. Uh, and right now I'm writing one of the commentaries that's going to end up in that series. So it's it's really exciting to be part of that project, and I hope that uh, the good fruits have been born by the New Testament series of the Catholic Commentary on Sacred Scripture will continue to be born in a new way in the uh, Old Testament uh, version uh, of that series. So I'm really happy that you uh, mentioned that. Well, that's great. I um, love that series. So I can't wait to read it and to uh, learn the scriptures through that uh, series. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, really, it's, a daunting, it's daunting in scope, but it's an exciting project. Because I, I believe uh, that series from Baker Academic uh, Press is able to deliver uh, the meaning of the, of the sacred text in a way that is pastoral and applicable, but also you know, uh, informed by the academic conversation. Right? So many Bible commentaries are in the sort of purely technical realm, but they're really only of interest to scholars. Uh, and I think this series is, is really helpful in that it's able to sort of bridge the gap between the scholarly world and the world of actual Christian ministry and sort of bring the scriptures to bear uh, in the uh, life of uh, every Christian. I, I just, I'm so excited about the, the series, and I, I think it will be um, a real blessing for pastors, priests, and, uh, and uh, Bible study leaders and teachers everywhere. Wonderful. And uh, as you so go about that... You wanted to talk about Mary in the Old Testament. Yes, please. <laughs> well, one thing I'd love to point out that I just think is uh, so beautiful about the English Standard Version when it comes to Mary in the Old Testament is the principal Marian prophecy in Isaiah 7.14. If you look in your NAB Revised Edition or you look in your RSV, it says, the young woman shall conceive. And again, 
Well, that's not what I remember. Right? But if you look in the English Standard Version, it says, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And there's a long-standing controversy about the underlying word there, Alma, in Hebrew, and whether it means virgin or whatever, whether it just means young woman. But when it's quoted in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, Matthew quotes it as the virgin shall conceive in Greek. And so the ESV respects what's going on in Matthew chapter 1, and that's how it translates Isaiah 7.14, which is the traditional English translation that you would find in the Douay Reigns or the King James, uh, and also, of course, in the Latin. So I, I feel like that's one place where the, uh, the ESV really shines as honoring the Virgin Mary and as honoring the connection between the Old Testament and New Testament. Many times uh, in a lot of Bible translations, when, when the Old Testament is quoted in the New, you go back and you check the Old Testament quotation, and it doesn't match, right? Or, or it's, like, really different. Uh, and in the ESV, they did a really good job of matching the Old Testament translations to their New Testament quotations. I think it's most obvious in Hebrews chapter 1, where it gives all these different quotations from the Old Testament, Psalm 2, Psalm 45, Psalm 110. You go back and look in the Old Testament in the ESV, and those quotations match, right? They're not dramatically different, like you find in a lot of translations where they don't try to preserve continuity between Old and New Testament. Another one of the most famous passages uh, about the Virgin Mary is what we call the Proto-Evangelium in Genesis 3.15. And this one is, is difficult for translators as well, because the ancient texts differ from one another. So, you know, we have all these Mary statues in Catholic churches and Catholic shrines and Catholic homes all over the place where Mary is standing on a serpent. Now, why is Mary standing on a serpent? Because if you go back to Genesis 3.15, uh, you read in the Latin, right, that she will crush the head of the serpent. But if you look in the Hebrew, it says, he will crush your head. <laughs> so translators have a difficult decision to make here. Right? Do we go with the ancient Latin translation, or do we go with the ancient Hebrew? And it, by and large, if you look in modern translations, they're going to go with the Hebrew, Hebrew version of that verse, right? and translate it as, he will crush your head. Uh, and but we still have all these Mary statues, so it's really important for us to remember that the Latin tradition right, says, she will crush your head, uh, in reference to Eve, right? but obviously as a kind of forecast, right, a foreshadowing, a, uh, a prophecy, if you will, of the Virgin Mary. Yeah, as you mentioned, Eve, we see Mary as the new Eve, and St. Irenaeus so eloquently put it that, Mary, by her obedience, undoes the knot of Eve's disobedience. And so that's kind of another parallel, that even in the Old Testament, we see some of these, these individuals who become types of Mary, that just as there are types of Christ, like Moses, uh, and how, how he's a type of, of Christ, we have some of these individuals that when we hear about them, when we read them, well, then we can say, well, they're kind of like a, a Mary figure for us, and they're kind of foretelling or foreshadowing uh, Mary. Maybe Esther is one of those, for example, or, or yeah. what, what have you. So, so yeah, there's richness in the Old Testament that what is old is, is fulfilled in the new, and we truly do see See that in the scriptures. Well, Father, I don't know if you've had a chance to go on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. Yes, um, I've been twice. You've been twice. Okay, so one of the most wonderful Marian sites to visit there is the Church of the Visitation it's my at Ein Karen. Yes. And if you go into the upper church there, and you look up at the murals on the walls, 
they have all of the feminine heroes of the Old Testament who are all types of the Virgin Mary. So you look up there and you'll see Queen Esther and Miriam and Eve and Jael and Deborah and Judith and Hannah and on it goes, right? All of these female heroes of the Old Testament, right? Heroines of the Old Testament who uh, prepare the way, if you will, for Our Lady. And I, I think that that church is such a, a beautiful testament to this way of interpreting Scripture. And I think even that quote that you gave us from Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 15, right? Sing out, O daughter Zion, right? Where the city of Jerusalem is sort of uh, treated in a kind of metaphorical sense as a woman who's rejoicing in the great victory that God has won. And this is a theme that we see many, many times in the Old Testament. So, for example, if you look in Exodus 15, you'll find Miriam, the sister of Moses, leading a song after uh, the defeat of the Egyptians at the Red Sea, right? singing and playing her tambourine. And then later, when David kills Goliath, you'll see young women singing a song about David. And so you get this sense, or, or, uh, and you see it again with, with Hannah, right, and how she sings a song when God delivers her from infertility and gives her a child. You see it again at the end of the book of Judith, after she's won the victory, she sings a song in honor of God. So what's going on here is a consistent biblical theme of women celebrating the victories that God has won in song, right? They sing uh, in praise of God's victory. And then this Old Testament theme is recapitulated in Luke chapter 1, right, where we see Our Lady, right, sing a song, right? She sings the, uh, the Magnificat uh, in honor of what God has done for her, right? My soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. So this idea of women singing victory songs is all over the place in the Old Testament, and then we find it fulfilled in this beautiful way as Our Lady sings her song, which of course is part of evening prayer, every single day. So I think, you know, one of the one of the ways, there are two different ways of reading Scripture, right? You can kind of pick it apart and dissect it, or you can try to see coherence in the whole. And I think a lot of times, scholars make the mistake of sort of picking the Bible apart, but then sort of like leaving all of the pieces out there on the operating table, and never putting it back together again, right? Uh, the patient needs to live, right? We need to understand it as a whole, we need to understand it from Genesis to Revelation in its content and unity, as Vatican II says. And it's really important for us to remember that this is God's word to us. It's not just a collection of ancient literature, right? It really is a message, right? It contains a, a saving message for us. And so I think seeing coherence is really important. One of my other favorite Old Testament passages that links us to the Virgin Mary is in the book of Judah. So this is one of those deuterocanonical books that's only preserved in the Greek language, right? We don't have a Hebrew copy. We're not sure whether there really was a Hebrew copy ever. Um, and at the end of the book, after, you know, the enemies have uh, fled and Judith has won the victory, the elders of the city, right, come to speak to Judith. And they say to her, this is Judith chapter 15, verse 9, you are the exaltation of Jerusalem. You are the great glory of Israel. You are the great pride of our nation. You have done all this single-handed. You have done great good to Israel, and God is well pleased with it. May the Almighty Lord bless you forever. And all the people said, so be it. And I just I just love that passage because it's 
such a wonderful foreshadowing of Our Lady, right? She is the exaltation of Jerusalem. She is the glory of Israel. She's the great pride of the nation, right? And she has done great good, right, by her fiat, right, by her, let it be done to me according to your word, right, by her consent. She has done great good for all of us, right, by her uh, consenting to the will of the Lord. Another wonderful Old Testament passage about Our Lady that's often skipped over is in Ezekiel chapter 44. The closed gate. Yeah. Right? Yes. Uh, so in this scene, right, uh, Ezekiel's having this grand vision of the temple. He's measuring the whole temple and, and all of this. And it, it's hard to remember what's going on here, right? Early in the book of Ezekiel, the glory of the Lord left the temple in chapter 11. But now, in this time of restoration, when the temple is going to be reconstructed, the glory of the Lord comes back and fills the temple. And the glory of the Lord, represented by that kind of the vision that Ezekiel has of the beasts and the wheels and the fire and the light and all of this, right? It's, it actually enters the temple by the eastern gate uh, and goes and rests in the in the Holy of Holies. And then it says in Ezekiel 44, verse 2, The Lord said to me, This gate shall remain shut. It shall not be opened, and no one shall enter by it, for the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered by it. Therefore it shall remain shut. So for the ancient Christian interpreters, they viewed Ezekiel 44, verse 2, as a, um, uh, a text that, that they could use to defend the perpetual virginity of Mary. Right? The Lord God has entered by this gate, namely by Mary, and no one else shall enter by it. This idea is actually really beautifully um, commemorated in the, uh, the liturgy of the Eastern Rite. So if you go to an Eastern Rite church or, or chapel... There's a, a gate that uh, separates the altar from the people. And the only people that are allowed to go through that gate are ordained priests. Right? So uh, the altar boys, right, and the congregants and so forth are not allowed to walk through that gate to go from uh, the area where the congregation is to the altar. Uh, however, when a baby boy is about to be baptized, he will be carried by the priest through that gate and presented to the Lord at the altar. And I, it's just a beautiful tradition. I, I had the privilege of uh, becoming a, a godfather for an Eastern Rite boy last year. And so I got to witness this beautiful ceremony where the priest carries the baby in, right, through this gate that no one is allowed to enter except the priest, and then offers the baby to the Lord. Uh, it's just a, such a, a, a wonderful scene for what God does for us through the Virgin Mary. Right? Wow. She is the gate, right? And Jesus, as the high priest of the new covenant, carries us, right, like, like a little child, through that gate to his Father in heaven and offers us to him. One of the other images from the Eastern Church, too, as you articulate this expression of the closed gate, uh, is that Mary being all-consumed, and so kind of they use the image of the burning bush, and that's another way I think that they talk about Mary's perpetual virginity, uh, just kind of the burning bush, that the fire that was unconsumably consumed or, or what have you. So, so there are all these rich images and biblical 
things in the Old Testament that really do allude to the Blessed Mother and have been a part of our scriptural tradition and our belief system for a very long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One one other uh, thread that I love to point out. I, uh, Father, have you ever been to the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception in Washington, D.C.? Regrettably, just once. I want to go back and just spend one. like a week there, and like just like I want to do my five day retreat at the National Shrine and uh, pray I at every it. chapel. <laughs> so, when I was a graduate student at Catholic University of America, which is on the same campus, uh, I got to go to daily mass at the National Shrine, you know, down in the Crypt Church, and it's just it's an incredible experience. I got to pray at all the little chapels in the in the in the National Shrine. Um, but one of my favorite things about the National Shrine is if you walk back by the high altar, right, and there's, obviously there's so much to look at, so much art. Back by the high altar, there are 15 altars. Okay, so there's one altar for every mystery of the rosary. Now, of course, this is before, they built it before John Paul II, so we didn't have 20 mysteries back then, it was just 15, okay? So you have an altar for every one of the 15 mysteries of the rosary. And of course, back before Vatican II, you'd have priests at each of those altars Right, uh, celebrating mass every day. So there are many. There were lots and lots of priests at Catholic University, and lots and lots of altars, uh, because every priest needed to celebrate uh, his own mass every day, right, at his own altar. And if you look at uh, the the artwork above each one of those altars, you have a depiction of that mystery of the Rosary. Right. So whether it's the Annunciation or the Crucifixion. For the resurrection, right? You have a, uh, an artwork in mosaic depicting that scene. But then, if you look up a little bit further, there's another artwork higher up. I think it's above the window. And you think, well, what is that, right? And those other artworks, those other mosaics, are the Old Testament scenes that prefigure the mysteries of the Rosary. And so, I just—it's such a beautiful meditation to go to the National uh, Shrine Basilica. Right, and walk to each one of those 15 altars, right, and look at those scenes from the New Testament and then the scenes from the Old Testament which prefigured what's going on. Uh, and I just think it's such a, a powerful thing to remember that the Lord was preparing the way all along, right, and that the mysteries that we find in the Rosary are actually there in a kind of hidden and secret way in the Old Testament. Wow, that is very beautiful. And I, yeah, you know, we read the New Testament with the eyes of the old, or we read the old with the eyes of the new, and, and just seeing all of these things play out. And we need people like you to share these things with us, to point them out to us. Otherwise, we might miss it. We might go our whole life without knowing it. So I'm so grateful that you've shared your abundant wisdom today about the Old Testament, about the scriptures, your love for the ESV Bible. All of these things have been very helpful to me, and I can only imagine how helpful they're going to be to all the people that listen to this episode. So one of the things I always do before I let a guest go is just to build quickly their Marian profile, just a way to show how someone loves the Blessed Mother. And so uh, I just have a few quick questions for you about that. The, the first, All right, go ahead, Father. Sure. The first would be... I hope I pass the test. <laughs> you, everybody passes the test, so you don't have to worry. You're usually giving the test. <laughs> But uh, uh, that's true. Um, how about a favorite title for the Blessed Mother? Oh wow, oh, there are so many. Somehow the the one Tower of Ivory comes to mind. 
uh, maybe because it appears in the Song of Songs, which I wrote my dissertation about. Okay, sure. You so sometimes the Marian profile also allows me to ask more questions. But uh, oh, great! Okay, as you talk about the Song of Songs, Burner of Clairvaux, the great lover of the Song of Songs, yeah. and wrote his I think four volumes uh, on that yeah. scripture, and and there's even some Marian. Uh, illusions in the song of songs i remember writing a paper once on it but uh, i i couldn't tell you what they are today <laughs> but anyways yeah the song of songs very rich scripture book uh, a lot of don't we call it a lot of allegory isn't it yeah oh yeah it's rich with allegory yeah how about a favorite marian sacramental hmm. well i mean of course the rosary uh it's hard to hard to add to the rosary but um maybe uh, i don't know if this is uh taking the question too far in the context but one of the most beautiful experiences i've had of marian devotion is praying with the uh, missionaries of charity i've had the opportunity to uh, you know give biblical teachings to them a few times and um at the end of their morning prayers uh, they sing a song to Our Lady, and it's just a uh, a really powerful moment in their life of devotion uh, that uh, has struck me and, and stayed with me uh, in my own experience of Marian devotion. So I, I don't know if that uh, adds to uh, my experience there, but there, it's just a really powerful, really powerful experience. Now, when it comes to Mary, there are lots of different prayers addressed to her. Of course, the Hail Mary, which the first half comes to us from the New Testament, from Luke's Gospel. But there are other prayers that the saints have written. Is there a Marian prayer that maybe you go to as your prayer? Ooh, I, I mean, I think the Memorare is the uh, is the key there, right? When we can flee to Our Lady in time of need, I think that's really uh, a wonderful, wonderful prayer. Uh, to, to memorize and to keep close to the heart. I think lots of people struggle with praying the rosary. Do you have a tip that's helped you pray the rosary better? <laughs> Don't pray the whole thing. <laughs> I remember uh, uh, our chaplain at the Augustine Institute used to, when we were say we were going to have a mass at a retreat or something like this, uh, and, there, and there was a lot of hustle and bustle, he would quiet everybody down before the mass and say, we're going to pray one decade of the rosary before we have mass to recollect ourselves. And I just thought, you know, that's so brilliant. It's so brilliant. Why? Because sometimes you don't have either the attention span or the time or the peace of heart or whatever it is that you need to be able to pray the whole rosary. So you just pray part of it. You know, some of the workers at the Augustine Institute have a practice where they um, pray one decade of the rosary every hour on the hour. Right? It just takes a couple minutes. It doesn't take very long at all, right, to pray one decade of the rosary. And somehow, I think praying a little bit of the rosary at any given moment, right, is of course going to lead you to pray more of the rosary in longer moments. And I just think, you know, praying a little bit of it at a time uh, can be really helpful, right, to kind of build prayer into your life. You know, whether it's praying every hour on the hour or praying in the car or praying while you're taking a walk or whatever it might be, I just think it's um, a way that we can quiet ourselves in a, in, a, in a brief amount of time, right, recollect ourselves and come before God. There have been lots of apparitions of the Blessed Mother. Uh, is there a story of Mary's apparition that touches your heart? Wow. I mean, uh, I go to Our Lady of Lourdes Parish, right? So uh, maybe this will uh, 
kind of help. My baby was crying, you know, at mass this weekend, right? So I went to out to the vestibule, and there's this big, beautiful statue of Our Lady of Lourdes up above the door uh, from the vestibule into the church. And uh, <laughs> I put him down on the ground. He's about one, right? So he could walk. So I put him down on the ground, and he's looking around, and then the statue of Mary caught his eye. And it was really high up, so he took a step back to get a better look. And it, he didn't, it wasn't far enough, so he took another step back. And he's still looking, and he takes another step back, takes another step back, right? And he's just sort of overwhelmed by the sort of appearance of her beauty. And I just felt like that was such a, a helpful moment for me, right? Reflecting on Our Lady, right? And our response to her, right? That we should be overwhelmed by her purity, her beauty, her holiness, right? And that 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 uh, purity sort of invites us in, right? right? That we sort of, we have to kind of step back to take it all in, right? And then she invites us, right, with, with the power of God's grace, right, into a life of faith, right, into the life of Jesus, into a life of faith, hope, and charity, right? And I just feel like, um, for me, that, that moment with Our Lady of Lourdes was really powerful. Well, she is the all-beautiful one. She is a tota pukra s. So how yeah. about, uh, you mentioned being out there at the shrine in Washington, D.C., so maybe this will be your answer, but there are lots of different shrines to Mary. Some of these apparition sites, of course, are shrines to Mary, but then there are devotional shrines to different titles and such of the Blessed Mother. Is there a Marian shrine you visited that has left an impression on you? Okay, so I'm really glad that you asked this question, Father, because... When I was on pilgrimage in the Holy Land, uh, the first time, uh, I paid a visit to a Marian shrine that I think everybody should visit, that uh, very few people know about. Uh, and it's in Jerusalem, and it's the traditional site of the Assumption. Uh, yes. So if you're in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's right adjacent to that. And it's, it's kind James. of a long story... Uh, it's, it's a long story as to how the custody of these different holy sites works, but the Franciscans used to have control of it, and their control was revoked at some point in the 1700s, and it was given over to the Orthodox, right? So it's, it's run by Orthodox priests. But you uh, enter this doorway that's unmarked, right? And you walk down these ancient stairs, right? Down maybe 100, 100 stairs, 150 stairs, down to the sanctuary, of this church, which was on a, a previous archaeological layer of Jerusalem. And then over to the right, there's this kind of box, right, that has a bunch of Marian icons and, uh, uh, and other devotionals attached to it. And you have to kind of crouch down to walk into the box. But once you get in there, what, what, we, what you see is an ancient sarcophagus. And, and tradition has it that that is the sarcophagus of the Virgin Mary from which she was assumed into heaven. And so you can take a moment there and pray before this sarcophagus, this shrine, right? And of course, place your rosary on it and touch it, uh, and then go on your way. But to me, it was such a powerful experience of contact, if you will, with the Virgin Mary, right? That her body was likely on this exact spot, right? And from this place, right, the Lord assumed her into heaven, and I feel like having that kind of contact with that mystery of the rosary has been very, very powerful for me, and I've been able to recall it every time I meditate on that mystery. 
Definitely. I've been there and I am a strong believer in, you know, there are these three positions that you can hold on the assumption. You can be an immortalist, a commissionist, or an assumptionist. And so I'm strongly an assumptionist that Mary dies, that she's placed in the tomb. And then, you know, three, four days later, uh, she, it's realized that she's been translated body and soul into heaven. So I'm a strong believer that Mary died. And part of that is because of that tradition, because of that little place, that little church uh, that commemorates it, and also because a lot of the writers of you know the first 500 years of Christianity had stories about the Dormition of Mary. So, uh, strong yeah. believer uh, in that, and I love that you brought up that that uh, shrine. How about a book yeah. about the Blessed Mother you would recommend? I would recommend uh, Saint Louis de Montfort, Secrets of the Rosary, as the as the place to begin. I love that book, so I totally agree. And lastly, when you go to Mass on a Marian feast day, like the Immaculate Conception, like Mary, Mother of God, or the Assumption, is there a Marian song you hope the choir will sing? Oh, the Salva Regina, of course. Yes. And if they don't, I'm disappointed. Well, that's great. And I love the Salve Regina. I love the Hail Holy Queen, kind of the English hymn version of it. You know, all creation, echoing, salve. Anyway, so, well, that's great. That's your Marian profile. I am so grateful for your time today for speaking with me about, uh, about the ESV Bible from Augustine Institute. If people want to learn more about you and the work of the Augustine Institute, how would you recommend them to find you and that information? Yeah, so the AugustineInstitute.org website is a great place to go. Uh, we also have Augustine.edu for our School of Graduate Theology. Um, and you can check out the ESV Catholic Edition Bible at CatholicBible.org. Very easy to remember, CatholicBible.org. And if you want to learn more about me, I have a blog, uh, CatholicBibleStudent.com, and all of my things are linked there. Okay, I'll definitely be looking up your website, catholicbiblestudent.com. That'll be great. And, uh, well, thanks so much for being a guest on How They Love Mary, and hopefully we can connect sometime in the future. Thanks so much, Father. It's been a pleasure. Yes, God bless you. You've been listening to the podcast, How They Love Mary. And if you've enjoyed today's podcast and want to support the podcast, I'd encourage you to do so by becoming a member at Patreon. By supporting this podcast on Patreon, you will help to pay for the monthly fees associated with the podcast and the possibility of upgrading equipment and also putting money into advertising and promotion. If you like this podcast, I'd encourage you to share with your family and friends. And please like it and review it on Apple Podcasts. Post about this podcast on your social media. And when you're on your social media, you can follow me, Father Edward Looney, at the handle at FR Edward Looney on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. I can't wait to share another episode of How They Love Mary with you next time, so be sure to tune in then. Until then, let us remain united in prayer to Jesus through Mary. God bless.